morning, everybody. Good morning. I'll start in Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving the wicked, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. There we go. I had to unmute myself Saturday. Yesterday I was teaching class, and for the first about four or five minutes, I was muted, and nobody said a word. So uh, that would have been interesting for me to preach a whole sermon muted, and nobody would say anything. They'd probably say, that was the best you preached in a long time, Pastor Tim. That was great. Um, I could really hear the Lord's voice. Uh, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at, the, at our scripture this morning. Um, 
Gracious Lord, uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for coming to us, um, not making us uh, find you, not making it difficult to find you. As the word says, um, the word is, is very near to us. It's on our lips. It's, it's near our hearts. We don't have to ascend to heaven to, to drag it down or to the depths of the earth to drag it up. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we look at this um, monumental portion of the book of Exodus, Lord, would you be with us and to help us to see and to understand what it is you want us to know this morning. Father, I want to pray for our city, our state, and our federal leaders as they're dealing with um, the spread of this virus and trying to contain and, and regulate it and slow it down. Lord, I pray that you would grant them tremendous wisdom. There are um, huge errors to make on either side of um, opening up the country again or keeping it closed. And, and um, Lord, lives are in the balance either way. So Lord, would you grant them extraordinary wisdom, surprise them with, with your wisdom. Father, I pray that by your general grace, you would restrain the evil of some of the little tyrants that want to come out um, now that uh, some of these folks have got more power. Uh, help them to lead well instead of um, uh, exercising uh, lordship over others and uh, have mercy on them. Father, thank you that so far our congregation, we haven't seen any problems from the virus but we pray that you would keep us safe. And Lord, that you would bring us through this. And Lord, we long for the day when we get to be together again, um, instead of vi uh, virtually through this, uh, this, this medium that you provided. Lord, we want to be physically in the same room, worshiping you together. And so Lord, hasten that day, we ask. Bless your word now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So um, there's a... a Protestant doctrine called the assurance of salvation. And basically, you know it. Um, um, do you, how do you know if you've been saved? Have you, do you know the Lord? How can you be sure that you have been saved? And the Protestant answer is, well, I put my hope in Jesus Christ, and, and that's how I know I'm, I'm secure. Um, that is a uniquely Protestant doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church denies the doctrine of assurance, um, I've been doing some reading on um, what they believe uh, as far as an assurance of salvation. And, and uh, one place said, it depends on your condition on your death. So that's kind of an odd definition. Um, the, the problem is when we don't have a, an assurance, when we lack that assurance, uh, it can really make you kind of crazy. As a matter of fact, that's what happened with Martin Luther is, is Luther had uh, gone into um, a monastery. He became a monk. And it was eating him alive to think that he had not, he had failed to confess one little sin here or there. Uh, and so his confessor, who he would go to and, and confess all these, you know, I, I coveted Brother Michael's uh, bread morsel. Uh, his confessor finally told him, Luther, go sin and come back. Um, but Luther was just consumed with this idea that he would not be right before God. And, and it just drove him crazy until... Um, his confessor said, Luther, go teach. And so he started teaching. And when he was teaching through Romans, he got a hold of the Greek text instead of the Latin translation. And that's when it all broke free for him. And he realized that he could have assurance of salvation, that he could be uh, uh, free. So he was able to achieve that, that peace of mind that he was longing for as a monk, trying to confess his way out of his sins. So this morning, as we look at this text, um, by the way, this text is huge. There are a number of ways to preach this. We could preach, you know, for two months on this, just the, the passage that uh, Paul read for us this morning. 
but I'm going to pick one path through it, one way to get through it. And, and what I hope we'll see for that is, is how can we have peace of mind today? How can we have assurance today? Um, how can we find rest? Um, some, everybody has that, that nagging feeling that something's not right. And the way that people deal with it is either they ignore it, but it doesn't like to be ignored and it won't stay away for very long. Um, kind of anesthetize it by entertainment or intellectual pursuits or something like that. But whatever you try to do to hide that idea that something's not right, at the end of the day, when you close your eyes and you lay your head on your pillow, that's, that feeling can come back and say, something's not right. Um, so what we need to see is, is how, do we, how do we deal with that? What do we do? How can we have some sort of assurance? How can we know that, that ultimately things will be okay? And what we're going to see in this dialogue between Moses and God is, is three things that will help us get that, that sense of assurance. We need to see how offensive our sin is, how important our representative is, and ultimately how gracious our God is. So those are the kind of three ways that we can look at this, this never-to-be-repeated event on Mount Sinai between Moses and God and find assurance for us. Is it, it sets a, a precedence. It sets a paradigm. So the, the passage begins with Moses uh, speaking to God. See, you said to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. And um, that is a strange saying, isn't it? You've told me to, to, uh, to go up, but bring this people up, but you haven't told me who's going to go. Well, I thought it was this people. We have to keep this in context. Last week, we kind of cheated. We looked at... Um, after the golden calf, what had happened? And Moses told God, you know, uh, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out too. And God said, look, I can't go with you because if I do, I'll destroy you. And then we jumped ahead to the end of the book. We went to chapter 40 where we saw the tabernacle was built and God's presence filled it. And it was in the middle of the camp and all of that. And what I said last week is this week, we'll figure out how we got from point A to point B. We'll, we'll see this here. So when Moses says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. He's not saying what assistant or what leaders. He's saying, he's still arguing that first point, which is God saying, I'm not going to go with you. I can't go with you or I will destroy you. And you can tell that because he says, um, Moses goes on, he says, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this people or this nation is your people. So Moses is, is calling God back and saying, these are your people. This is your covenant people. And God responds, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It sounds like he agreed, doesn't it? Does it sound like at that point he went, yeah, then, then we'll do that. But what Moses says next doesn't really make sense if that's what he meant, because Moses' next response is, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. But he just said he would. Well, here's the thing. Here's the key that unlocks this. Um, and the problem is we, we lose it in translation because we don't have a plural you. Um, when God says there, my presence will go with you, I will give you rest, both you are singular. He's still talking to Moses. He's still saying to Moses, I will lead you out. I will take you into the promised land and we'll start over then. So Moses is still defending his people. He's saying, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So he, he's still identified with Israel, and he said, I don't want to go if they don't go. 
That, that's something that I, I am not interested in connecting with. So this brings up a couple of questions. There's a lot of nagging questions that come up through this section. One of them is, how did Moses find favor in God's sight? Remember who Moses is? Um, he came out from uh, Pharaoh's palace. He saw an, uh, an Israelite being beaten by an Egyptian, and he murdered him. And he knew that it was wrong. He knew he had done something wrong because after he murdered him, he dragged the body into the sand and tried to bury and hide it. So he's a murderer, and he knows it. And then when they're coming back from Midian, when he's heading back, he's got a, a wife and two children. Do you remember that story? It was an odd story. It stands out. God tried to kill Moses. And the way that his wife Zipporah stopped it was she circumcised the two boys and threw the foreskins at his feet. And that stopped him. Moses is a murderer and Moses is a covenant breaker. He didn't keep God's covenant. So how on earth is it that Moses found favor in God's sight? How can that happen? Well, according to the book of Hebrews, it was through faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says, is it goes through these events in the, in the Exodus and says, by faith, Moses did this. So the way that Moses found favor in God's sight was by faith. Well, what about the Israelites? Last week, we heard that when Moses would go out to the tent of meeting, they would stand up. And when God showed up at the, the uh, door of the tent of meeting, they would worship. Isn't that mean that they, they had faith too? Not according to, again, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning of verse 2. Verse two. For good news came to them just as, uh, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have, we who have believed entered that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the distinction that we're getting here is Moses is justified by faith. And that's not a new concept that started 400, 500 years ago with uh, Father Abraham. Moses is justified by faith. The Israelites, by and large, are not exhibiting faith. They're not, they're not believing, trusting God. And we saw that because last two weeks ago, they built a golden calf and said, here are your gods. So what, what Moses is saying is, look, if, if you're going to take just me, then don't take just me. I have so identified, I've so plugged in with my people if your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? So this is Moses is saying, look, I understand how bad their sin is. I understand how, how horrible they've been, but I'm still identifying with them. I'm still connecting with them. Again, from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, this is how the author of Hebrews describes Moses' connection with the Israelites. Beginning in verse 24, he says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth, uh, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for uh, looking to the reward. So right there in, in Hebrews, it's saying that Moses identified that strongly with the people. He would identify with them in their reproach, in their, in their slavery, in their being beaten. He, and it didn't stop when the exodus happened. He didn't suddenly go, okay, well, I don't care about them anymore. So that's what you see is this sin is so strong, it's going to separate God from his people, uh, from the covenant people. Only Moses so far is standing righteous before God. Perhaps we can infer that uh, Joshua is because Joshua gets to come up on the mountain and go to the tent of meeting. But what we're seeing, the picture that's being painted for us, focuses squarely on Moses. 
Moses is showing us what it means to be righteous in God's sight and what it means to be unrighteous because the people are not doing that. He, he asked the question, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? What will set us apart? Even if we stay here at Sinai and just dwell here, what will set us apart? How will people know that we are your people? How, how will we be distinct from the Canaanites or the, um, the um, Mesopotamians or, or the Am Amalekites or anything? The only way that they will stand out, the only thing that makes Israel unique is God. The, God has already pronounced they are a stiff-necked people. They're no better than their neighbors. They're no more righteous. They're no more pliable. They're no more rapid to obey God. They're stiff-necked. What sets Israel apart is God has fixed on them his covenant love. He said, I am their God. So this really brings up the point of how bad sin is. This is, this is the picture that we've got. Moses is standing there asking God, don't abandon your people. Their sin is so bad that God is on the verge of saying, I'm just going to cut them off. I'm just going to ignore them and wipe them out. Uh, that's how bad sin can be. So what is sin? What do we mean by sin? Well, I think at its simplest, first of all, the concept of what sin is is, is much more complicated than what I'm going to do right now. But in this context, boiled down, sin is rebellion against authority. It is bucking authority. Just a few, 40 days earlier, God had said to them on the mountain in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or of any likeness of anything on, uh, in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the water. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. I am the Lord your God. That is an authoritative statement. That's why it's called a commandment. And their response immediately within, within a month and a half was, well, we're not going to do that. And really that idea that, that sin is rebellion against authority goes back to the first sin, doesn't it? Eve was talking with the serpent, bad idea to begin with. She was flirting with the idea of the tree and the serpent deceived her. So she was confused. She was deceived. But Adam was not deceived. That's what 1 Timothy 2 says is Adam was totally not deceived. He did this with a clear head. He looked at the fruit. He looked at his wife still standing there and he went, I'm going to disobey God because I think I'll get something else. So the first sin was rebellion against God, rebellion against that authority. God has said, do this, and they wouldn't do it. So God has made the universe. He's created the entire universe, and he knows how it works. He knows how to live in it the best. He knows how it's supposed to do this. Before the service began, we were talking about looking up into the night sky and just being blown away or looking out across these poppy fields and seeing these bright orange, vibrant poppies and just taken away by the beauty of it. God created those things for, in order to show us that there is such a thing as beauty. There is something called beauty, and it is wonderful. It delights our heart. It's supposed to. What I was saying was, well, secularists want us to think that's just a random chemical reaction in our brain. It doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't say that you know, there is beauty or that we really feel love or anything. But that's just not true because the stars come out every night. And here in the Antelope Valley, it's less often that we don't see them than it is that we do see them. The poppies, in various degrees, return year after year after year. So why is it that we find them beautiful if they're not unique, if they don't show up every once in a while? Because there is such a thing as beauty. So what God is telling them here is when he's giving them the law, he's not saying, here's all these random things that I threw together that I don't want you to do. Um, it's not some fickle thing. He is saying, I want you to exist in this world, even this broken, 
fallen world that's that's under a curse. I want you to exist in this world in the best way you possibly can. I want you to be filled with joy. And what Israel is doing is they're looking at that. They're looking that God in the face and saying, I don't want that. I'm going to reject that authority and I'm going to do it my own way. And so sin is that bad. So this is why God would look at them and say, I can't go with you. If I go with you into the promised land, if I hang around you anymore, I may destroy you because you're going to continue to buck the authority, the things that I'm telling you that will make you actually happy in this world, that will find, you will find fulfillment. You're pushing against them and it could destroy you. And so there's, like I said, there's more to it than this. And, and when we look at the book of Romans in a couple of weeks, we'll begin to flesh out more of what sin is and how it works and what it does and that kind of thing. But for right now, that's, I think that's a fair representation of the issue is Israel has bucked God's authority. They've said no to him. They're going to do it their own way. And that is severe enough. That is bad enough that they could wind up losing fellowship with God. And so that's, that's a healthy reminder for us is we want to categorize our sins and say these are sins and these are not. Um, in reality, that's why Paul says, look, if it doesn't come from faith, it's sin. It is, he's saying, if we have in our hearts what we know to be right and we don't do it, we're bucking the authority that God's given us in our hearts. And, and we can fall into that trap just as easily. It's much more easy to sin than to not to. It, it's much more easy to fall into that. So we need to recognize if we're going to find assurance, it's a funny place to go. But before we start, we have to agree with God about sin. Our sin is that bad. If we downplay it, our assurance will falter. If we hold it up as where it should be, our, our assurance will be rock solid when we get to the end of the equation. But right now we have to start with, with fact A, your sin is that bad. It really is that bad. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we deal with this? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, that where, that's where point two comes in. It's important to have a representative, and the right representative is, is significantly important because the sin is a reality. It is an offense to God. It is a bucking of God's authority, and so we need somebody to stand between us, to talk for us, to make it better for us. And so the second point is how important a representative is. So as Moses has said to God, look, if you're not going to go with us, don't do this. Um, we we want to be unique. We want to be recognized as unique. You're the only thing that will make us unique in this world. Please go with us. And so after all of this intercession, verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Do you see what he didn't say? He didn't say this very thing that you have spoken, I will do because Israel's really not that bad after all. Um, he didn't say, well, you know, they didn't really sin, or he didn't go, well, you know, I'll just forget this particular sin. We, we won't deal with this one. Um, we'll scratch this one off the books. Um, that's not what he said. What he said is, I will do this, Moses, because you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses has been picked to be the representative between Israel and God, and Moses is the right person for that job. Um, we're going to see his limitations here in a little bit. But right now, if you look at this, compare it, uh, Moses to Israel, and Moses is the right God to be standing there. And so as God capitulates and says, your intercession has received, I've received your intercession, and I have, I'm going to do what you've asked. The very next thing that Moses says is, please show me your glory. Now, when Paul read it, it was a different translation than it said, now show me your glory. But in the Hebrew, it's a little softer. 
And it really is a plea. It, it is a pleading, please show me your glory. Um, isn't that a strange question after God says, I will do what you said. Why would Moses bring up, well, show me your glory? Um, one commentator said what Moses is saying is, put it in writing, buddy. You know, make, show me your glory. Let's, let's make this for real. Um, I don't get that flavor from the way he said that. I don't get the flavor from the conversation that's going back and forth. Do you remember how Moses was described last week? He, he would speak face to face with God as a friend to a friend. And the dialogue that we're seeing so far sounds like friends speaking, one friend with much more authority, but two friends speaking. And so I don't see this as Moses saying, well, you know, put it in writing or I'm not going to believe it. So what is he saying by, what is he asking for by show me your glory? Well, I think what he's asking is he's saying, look, you've agreed to go with us. You said you will go with us. Show me who's going with us. Let me have a taste of who's going to be going with us because we're going to have to represent you to the nations. Your glory is going to be amongst us, and that's going to make us distinct. So show me what that looks like. Show me what that glory looks like. So that's what he's asking. That's the thing that he's asking for is, is a taste right now of what that is. And so what God says in response, please show me your glory. He said, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name before you, Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So what he does is he agrees to show him his glory, but then what's up with the I will be gracious to um, whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I'll be merciful? Why does that fit in? Well, I think what he's saying is, is he is saying, I am going to go with you. And you've asked me to show me your, your show you my glory, and I will do some of that. But don't think for a second that means that Israel now gets a, a, a free ticket all the way to the promised land, no problems. What he's saying is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lead you. But along the way, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will be merciful to whom I will show mercy. And that means God can know this. We can't know this at this point in the story. Aside from Caleb and Joshua, this generation is going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to make it. God will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. Um, so he's going to do, he's going to fulfill what he said, but it's not going to be necessarily what Moses is thinking. So this is part of that dialogue back and forth. And then God goes on. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So what is his glory? When, when he says, show me your glory, um, the, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which is weight. It's, it's the weightiness of it. And, and it's kind of lost how that turns into glory. But what we mean by glory, if we look at what God is saying here, is he says, Show me your glory, and his response is, all my goodness will pass before you. I will proclaim my name, but you can't see my face. So his goodness is his glory. His, his um, uh, name is his glory. His face is his glory. And, and those are all synonyms for that same idea. God doesn't have a physical face. He is spirit. Um, he, he doesn't have a front and a back. We'll see that in a little bit. But what he's saying is there's something about the face that is what his glory is. As a matter of fact, when he says, I will go with you, is he says, my face will go with you, literally. It's my face will go with you. So his, his face is his character, his presence, his, who he is. Remember when we talked in, in chapter 3, when God first revealed to Moses that his name was Yahweh, I am, um, we said there is something in Hebrew, in the Hebrew way of thinking, that, 
the name defines the person or it, it is something about the person. So Hebrews didn't, back then, didn't name babies as soon as they were born. They, they waited and they got to know them a little bit and then they announced something about them. The same is true with God. So when God says that his name is his glory, think about his name for a second. I am. That's who he is. He is the eternal one. And so his face will go before them. His face is his representation of who he is. But then listen to what God says. He goes on. He says, you can't see my face and live. Well, then there's going to be a problem because I'm going to parade my goodness, my, my glory before you. So how should we deal with this? Well, here's what we'll do. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock and my glory will pass by and I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. The, the, there's two different words for hand. The one here is not what we usually think of as hand. It's more, I will cover you with my palm. So what the picture there is, if we keep in mind that, that Moses is a friend of God, he speaks to him face to face, his friends speak. What God is saying here is he's saying, I'm going to hide you by the softest part of my hand, by the palm, by the, the, the hollow of my hand. I'm going to cover you with that. I'm not going to cover you with a rock. I'm not going to have an angel stand before us. I'm not just going to blind you. My kindness, my softness, the softest part of my action, which his hand represents his action, will cover you. And so you won't see my face and die. It's a more of a sense of intimacy. So you see what, the, what our representative here looks like, this Moses. He has got this kind of a close rep, uh, relationship with God. God's going to take care of him. And then in the, in the end, he says, after I pass by, I will take, off, take my hand away and you'll see my back, but no one can see my face. So what he's saying is, I'm going to cause my glory to pass by you, to walk in front of you, and I'm going to hide you from it. And then after I pass by, I'll let you see the afterglow of my glory, the result of my glory, what comes next. Um, so he's going to protect him so he won't die. And then he's going to, he's going to let him see that glory. Uh, the a representative here is really important when it comes to that relationship with God. Moses asked, please show me your glory. Jesus never asked, Father, show me your glory. He never once said, Father, would you please show me what you look like, what you're like. Um, he had a more intimate relationship with God than Moses did because Moses, God never announced from Mount Sinai, this is my son who I love, listen to him. He gave commandments from Sinai, but he never did that with, with Moses. Jesus has a more intimate relationship and yet never said, Father, show me your glory. Here's what he said in John chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you get, have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's, he's doing the Moses thing. He's identifying with the people, the people that you have given me. I want them to see my glory. That, that's taking Mount Sinai and Moses seeing God's glory a step further. We are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Hebrews 1 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So our representative is not just standing there beholding God's glory. He is God's glory. He has a glory that God has given him before the foundation of the world. Our representative is better than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in the house, but Jesus is the son who will inherit it all. Moses is the one who found favor in God's sight. Jesus is the one who never was out of favor in God's sight. From eternity past, he was always loved and beheld by the Father.
And so our representative is better. So first of all, we have to recognize your sin really is that bad. It really is an offense to God. God is offended by all sin. Some sins are much worse than others. All of our sin is an offense to God. It really is. And, and don't downplay it and say, well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. But the second thing is we have a representative who goes before God and he has, he has found favor in God's sight. He's never been out of favor in God's sight. And so therefore we are received. God doesn't say, oh, his, you know, Tim's sin, oh, I'm just going to ignore that. Or it wasn't really that bad. Or, you know, he had reasons or whatever. Tim's sin is really that bad. It really is. But the representative of Jesus Christ has dealt with it. And because of him, I will accept Jesus. I will accept Tim in Jesus' place. He will be with Jesus. And, and in Jesus Christ, we get to see God's glory. So the last part then is how gracious is our God? How gracious is he? And this is the part where Moses, chapter 34, Moses goes back up on the mountain. He cuts out two more tablets of stone. Remember what happened with the first ones. He came down the mountain carrying them. God had engraved them. These were, these were not inspired, but actually authored by God as he comes down the mountain. He sees the people playing the harlot in front of a golden calf, and he's so mad he drops the, the tablets and they shatter. Um, that's how angry he was with the people. You blew it. You had this. And, you, and you, you went off that way. And so God says, let's do this again. So cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And he says, I will write on the tablets the words on the, that were on the first tablets, um, which, by the way, you broke. That really does sound like friends, doesn't it? So, you know, don't forget, you busted these, buddy, but I'm going to go ahead and fix it. So he says, come up in the morning and present yourself. No one may come up with you. This is another one. Of, this is even more isolated than the other ones because when Moses went up the first time, Joshua came with him to a certain distance. When he came up the second time, Joshua and the elders came up with him a certain distance. This is unique. God says, no one will come up on the mountain, only you, and no flocks or herds, nothing. Make sure that the, um, the mountain is completely isolated. So Moses cuts the tablets. He gets up in the morning. He goes up on top of the mountain with the tablets in his hand. And as he's standing there, verse 5 the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I just, what did this look like? When he, when he came on the mountain and he pronounced the Ten Commandments, it was clouds and it was lightning and it was thunder and there was a, a flame like a kiln exhaust coming up off the mountain and, and the people trembled and, and it was terrifying. And this time it, it's a similar thing. But it's described in much more tender terms. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And stood with him. Not, not hidden from him, not a distance from him, stood with him. And so this is when it, it actually takes place. The Lord passed before him and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation. Now, that pronouncement has, is loaded with, with tensions. There's a lot of things going on. We could stop and camp on the first two words of this. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God uh, merciful and gracious. You, you could stop and just say, well, the name Yahweh, we've kind of already dealt with that in chapter 3 at the burning bush. But this is, I am. This is, 
the self-existent one, the one who doesn't depend on anything else. This is existence itself. This is reality itself standing there. I am, I am. Or as we translate it, the Lord. This is that issue of authority again, this ultimate reality, this, this real sense of being, this person who exists of himself is the Lord. He is the one who should be obeyed, who should be heeded, who, who we should listen to. This is the God. We could spend an entire sermon on that. Kind of reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. I heard about a nun one time who couldn't get past our father when she said the Lord's Prayer. She would stop and go, our, not just Jesus, but mine. Our, not just mine, but the whole church. He's our father. And she couldn't get past it. And the same thing here. We could camp out on the Lord, the Lord, but there's more. So let's press on. What comes next is where we get some of the tension. It says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can those both be the same? How can those both be true? How can they both be the same thing? He says that um, he forgives iniquity and transgression. And if that was all he said, then we would be universalists. We'd say everybody goes to heaven because God just forgives everybody. Um, or if we said um, just the second part, just that he will by no means, um, let's see, and... Um, he will by no means clear the guilty, then everybody goes to hell. Um, but the two things, though they seem to conflict, are both true. He, he is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, and he won't forgive those, um, uh, the transgressions of those who are guilty. So how do we reconcile those? Um, well, the first thing is, this, to keep in mind, is we should let the Bible reconcile that for us, don't you think? Instead of us reasoning through it, let's let the, let's let the Bible speak to this. So this is a, um, a tip I got from John Piper. Piper preached, preached a sermon on this, and, and he kind of pointed us in the direction. Um, first of all, the term merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is repeated, I've counted at least four times or four places in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's repeated in the book of Nehemiah. It's in a handful of Psalms, I think three or four Psalms. Joel cites it, and so does Jonah. So let's take a look at those last two and see how they deal with this truth that God is, um, is abounding in loving kindness, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, those kind of things. Uh, Joel chapter 2. Joel, by the way, is the fiery prophet. Um, he is just announcing doom and gloom and, and judgment that's coming on him and calling the people to repent. And that's, that's the bulk of his message. Um, I had to preach Joel in um, a preaching lab in seminary, and I just kind of adopted Joel's tone and, and went after people, you know, just kind of saying, this is what's coming. And at the end of the sermon, everybody was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I was like, well, I don't know. You figure it out. He didn't get really specific. So it's a really fiery, uh, a fiery message from Joel. But in chapter two, this is what he says, beginning in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he may not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So what, what Joel does is he appeals to that and he says, he doesn't deny their sin. He doesn't say, well, don't worry about it. God just forgives everybody. 
he, he looks at them and he said, you people are rotten. You have done horrible things. You've offended your God. But if you will turn to him, if you will call on him, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will turn. And so if we look at the second one, in, or the, the last one in the list, the book of Jonah, Jonah's the grouchy prophet. Um, he, he, remember, I, I preached him, I think when I first came, we preached Jonah. He doesn't want to do what God told him to do, which is go to Nineveh and preach, because Jonah has a problem with that. He doesn't like Ninevites. He thinks they're rotten. He, he's probably a, a Jewish snob, thinking only the Jews should be saved. And so when he goes and finally gets to Nineveh, after really a harrowing experience at sea, he goes and he begins to preach. It's a three-day journey. He only begins to do the first day journey, and then he gives up. But God sparks revival in Nineveh, and the whole city repents. So Jonah goes and heads off onto a hill to look over the city. Jonah chapter 4, right at the beginning. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said to the Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? This is what made me, hate, uh, made me haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting of danger or of disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So in Joel's case, he says, look, if you will repent, the fact, this truth that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, he will act on that if you change your hearts, if you stop doing what you're going to do. What Jonah said was the exact opposite. And I know that's true about you, and I don't like it. I want you to zap those rotten um, um, Ninevites. I don't want them to survive. And I know if I come and preach to them and they repent, you're going to do that. So that's the key to the first part of this is God will show steadfast love, he will be gracious, he'll be merciful, he'll be slow to anger to those who repent, if, if we repent. But, because the problem here is, who needs to have grace and mercy extended to them? Not the perfect, but those who are sinful. And so when he says, I'm, I'm not going to clear the guilty, the guilty are the ones who need this. And the key that the Old Testament teaches us to getting that grace and that mercy for those who are guilty is repentance. And it shows us repeatedly that repentance will do this. So this is how John Piper summed it up. He says, the answer of Joel and Jonah is that he will forgive the guilty who turn from their sin and turn to God with their whole heart. And the guilty who spurn his offer of mercy, he will by no means clear. So there is a sin that they can commit that they won't be cleared of. Um, and that sin is to refuse to repent, to refuse to admit their sin is their sin. So the second part then is another one where he says that he will visit the uh, sins of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um, what if some of those children or children's children to the third and fourth generation are those who are repenting? Will they still suffer the father's sins? Will they still suffer because of their father's sins? Um, that's the second part of this that, that is troubling is how do we wrestle with this? Well, Ezekiel appeals to this, and, and this is what Ezekiel says um, in chapter 18. He says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the sons. The righteous, righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. 
So is that him undoing that curse at Sinai? Is it him unlocking that and taking that apart? Um, and really, I mean, this is what we see when you look through the history of Israel. When you look at the kings of Israel, is that's the story is so-and-so did not do the evil that his father did, and he repented, and God was gracious to him, and he, he reigned. Or so-and-so did not do like his father, but fled after the, uh, the um, sin of the Israelites and did evil in their sight. And so there's this breaking back and forth. And you don't see the sins of the fathers visited on the sons that way. So then what's going on with that? What, what is, what's happening there? Well, listen to the second commandment. This is, this is back from chapter 20. And there's some of this repeated, or not repeated, I guess, said beforehand in the second commandment. This is it. He says, you shall, make for, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here's the danger that he's saying is, is the, the sins of the father, especially in this idea of idolatry, of, of having these other gods, of bucking that authority of God, that is the kind of thing that gets passed down. It's modeled for our children and our children walk in it. So he will, be, he will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children of those who hate him. So the, the children are in that category too, but he will show steadfast love to the thousands who love him. So there is that, that opportunity for repentance, that, cha that, that chance to return to God, to have that moment where we can come back to God, where we can break that cycle of, of sin that we pass on. It's gracious of God to do that. He, it sounds like what he, exactly what he's explaining he is, right? Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to those who love him. That, that's great news. So here's the, here's the thing. As we come to this last part, we see how gracious God is, but don't for, don't let's not take grace or God's graciousness too far because Moses in this instance didn't get to see God's face. God hit him in a rock, covered him with his hand, wouldn't let him see his face. We know the end of the story. Moses didn't get to see the promised land either. He stood on a mountain and looked and saw where it was, but he didn't get to go in. So God's graciousness and his, his steadfast love extend to a certain point. Um, it didn't just obliterate everything Moses had done wrong. It, it, took, it took Moses only so far. And a similar thing happens with Elijah. Elijah has the same experience um, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, he has just had this encounter, power encounter with the priests of Baal. Uh, he wiped him out. They slaughtered him. He flees into the desert. Uh, Jezebel pursues him. Uh, God provides for him. And then... Um, he, he feeds him, and he, he tells him, get up and go. And in 1 Kings 19.8, Elijah goes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Where is Horeb, the mountain of God? It's where we're standing right now. It, it is Mount Sinai. That's another name for it is, is Mount Horeb. And when he gets there, he goes and he hides in a cave, kind of like um, Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock. And as he's there, he hears a tremendous wind and he hears an earthquake, and he sees fire, and, and suddenly he hears this small voice in the middle of the whirlwind, and that's when he bows down and worshiped, because that's when God spoke to him. So both of them were on the same mountain. Both of them saw that same epiphany, that same appearance of God, that, that, that 
earth-shattering appearance of God. They had it in slightly different um, manifestations, but they both experienced it. And neither one of them got to see God's face. Or did they? Actually, they did. Because those two men show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke chapter 9, when is it chapter 9? I don't think it's chapter 9. In Luke, when Jesus goes up on the mountain, and his disciples fall asleep, and when they wake up, they're standing next to Jesus. Jesus is glowing. He's radiating. His face is glowing. His hair is like the sun. His clothes are whiter than anybody could have made. And standing on each side are Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, who didn't get to, Moses didn't get to see the promised land. Now he does. He stands in the promised land. Elijah didn't get to see God's face, but he heard his voice. Now both of them look at the transfigured Christ, and they see the face of God. They finally got to see it. God's grace and mercy was extended to them in his time, in his way. And all of it came only through the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't get to sneak past and do it their own way. They received that mercy and that grace from Jesus Christ. So let's go put these three points back together again. First of all, sin really is that bad. For Jesus to deal with sin was not just for him to go up and say, Ah, Dad, forgive him. It cost him his life, and not just his life, but as he hung on the cross, his father turned away from him so that Jesus would yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how bad sin is. It is so bad that for it to be broken, for it to be forgiven, for the pardon to actually come, God forsakes God. That's huge. Sin really is that bad. Don't downplay your sin. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Recognize it for what it is. It is horrible. It is putrid in God's sight. It is an offense to him. But the second part, God is graceful and merciful, gracious and merciful. We have an advocate who stands before him, an advocate who is as great as Moses was, is better than Moses. He is one who didn't find God's favor. It's the one who brought God's favor with him. We have to have the right advocate. If our advocate is our good works, we're going to fail. If our advocate is, well, I really feel bad about it, we're going to fail. We need an advocate who stands there and who hasn't failed so that in the end, we may see God's face. We may behold his glory. And we see it now in the face of Jesus Christ. But don't forget where the story ends. The city of God, where there's no temple, no tabernacle, no walls, no screens, no veils, no priests, none of that, because... God himself and the Lamb dwell in their midst. We get to see his face. So this whole promise of, Lord, will you go with us? How will we be distinct? How will we be different from anybody else? Is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his people, in the church. And ultimately, we sit there in the center of the city with God and the Lamb unshielded because we have the right advocate, because we have the right representative. So how important is the right representative to have? Well, what Moses is showing us is it's vital. We can't do it without. Moses was a, was a placeholder. He was a promise. He was one who was looking forward. He even promises later on, look, somebody who's going to come after me will be a prophet. And you listen to him better than you listen to me. He, he can only hold the place, be this figure of what Christ will accomplish. And then in the end, Jesus is his advocate. Jesus is his representative standing with him. So this, oh, there's so much more we could say about this passage. There's so much to be said here. There's so much, so much richness in what's gone on. But I think those three points can help us have that assurance. So where is your assurance? Can you have assurance? Or is Rome right? You never know. 
you, you might or you might make it or you might not. One little slip up and you're out. Or do we look to our assurance as Jesus standing before the Father who has never slipped up, can never slip up, will never slip up at all because he is resurrected. He is in the presence of God. He is a representative. Can you have assurance because of that? That's the assurance that we can have because we're not trusting in ourselves. We're not trusting in our performance. We're not trusting in our ability. We're not trusting in our sinlessness. We're not trusting in the, the depth of our emotional, oh, I am so sorry, God. Um, when we can barely get the words, look, I, I sinned and I'm sorry, out of our mouths, we have an advocate standing before the Father who does it perfectly for us. So we can have assurance in this crazy upside down world that's it's gotten really weird lately. We can have the assurance of knowing that our advocate stands before God the Father and that God is merciful and gracious and that he will be with us always because of our, our great and blessed Savior. So that's this one. Next week, we're going to look at the, the story about Moses' face glowing. And uh, that sounds kind of odd, but I think once we get there and we, un we unpack that, we dig through that, you'll see what that means. And we'll look at it from a New Testament perspective because Paul has a lot to say on it. After that, we're going to start the book of Romans. And I am at once thrilled and terrified <laughs> to deal with Romans because it is such a big and rich and deep book. Um, I just, I, I know I'm not adequate to present it to the church. And I'm just counting on my representative doing it for me and me not messing it up. So if I can, if I can um, hope that way, um, I'm looking forward to the book of Romans with you all. I think it's going to be a wonderful journey. And when we go to Romans, it's going to unpack a lot of the things we kind of glossed over here. It's going to unpack the nature of sin and the nature of salvation. That's what the book is about. So with that, let's close in prayer. Uh, let me lead us in prayer now. Lord, we are so grateful that our Redeemer lives. Lord, that Jesus is the one who stands in your presence, who stands before your face and represents us. So Lord, he has so identified with us. He didn't just leave Pharaoh's palace to go hang out with slaves. Lord, he left the palace of heaven and took on the form of a servant, emptying himself, being made one of us, sharing in flesh and blood. You can't identify with us any more than that. He took on himself a reasonable human nature, mind, soul, spirit, body. And Lord, in that, your eternally begotten son, who you were always in love with, who you've always expressed favor for, who you never hated, took on our nature so that we could come and be with you. Lord, thank you for our greater Moses. And thank you that we have assurance that we stand in your presence today because we are trusting in him and not ourselves. Lord, would you lead us? And Father, I want to sneak ahead a couple of weeks and pray. Lord, would you be with us as we travel through the book of Romans? Give us insight. Give us wisdom. Lord, curb my tongue to say your words and no more. And Lord, may we handle the book of Romans in a way that brings you great glory, as it did when Paul first wrote it. Lord, be glorified in our, in our absence from each other. Draw us together soon. We pray that we can meet in, in the building and not just have a picture of it behind. And Lord, we ask this because of the mercy and the grace and the steadfast love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.